0: Everyone, welcome back to Climate Transformed. Here with, with Abe Yokel, one of the co-founders of Congruent Benches, which is an early-stage climate VC with around $600 million in AUM, 48 deals. I'm probably stealing your thunder, Abe, from your presentation, so I won't go into too much detail. cover a wide spectrum of sectors that we cover here at Climate Transformed, including mobility, food, food and ag, et cetera. I'll get you to dive in with a presentation in just a, just a second, but everybody, again, Q&A functionality at the bottom of the screen, please utilize that. Abe's got a presentation, which will probably go for about 25 minutes or so, and then we can dive into a bit of Q&A. But Abe, you're in San Francisco currently, correct? I am. Perfect. Tell me a little bit about you and how you got to Congruent Ventures. How did you meet Josh, your co-founder? Tell us a little bit about what got you in that seat today.
1: Maybe Josh made me his co-founder. So I, (laughs) Abe Yokel, co-founder of Congruent Ventures, as Paul just mentioned. I've been doing climate venture now for coming up on 19 years, which is a little frightening. We used to call it cleantech. Actually, when I started, we used to call it nothing. It was a a conglomeration of a bunch of industries that nobody wanted to name. And uh, eventually we all threw it into a bucket and called it cleantech, which was a poor name as well. So I was thirteen years at a large venture fund that was clean tech specific out of Boston, opened up our Sandhill office when the mainstream venture community decided that climate or clean tech at the time would be interesting to invest in in 2006 through two thousand eight. It all blew up. I stuck it out for a long time with my my friends at my former firm. And then in 2016, 2017, My co-founder, Josh Posemontier, who at the time was at Prelude Ventures, reached out to help form what is now Congruent. The idea was to help reboot the capital stack, hence the title of the presentation I'm going to run through. There was almost no investment going on at the earliest stages of capital formation in that kind of 14 to 16, 17 timeframe. And the theory of operation for us was to help aggregate high-quality institutional capital, and bring a traditional venture approach to the broad climate sector. Obviously not a sector, but the disparate sectors that we call climate tech. And we pulled together our first fund in, in what was it? 2017 of just under hundred million. We're now actively investing out of a second seed stage fund of 175 million.
0: Got it. I know you've got a lot more detail than that to share with us. So please share your screen and dive into the presentation.
1: Great. So I'm going to run through this. I may take more or less than the 20 minutes allotted here. But just as a quick snapshot, we already covered some of this. About 600 AUM across a series of funds. When we invest, we invest early. We'll do pre-seed, seed, and what we would describe as old school series A, which means back when I started venture, a series A was like $5 million. Now a series A can be like $30 or $40 million. We'll invest 250 k up to a million in a pre-seed, one to three in a seed, and up to kind of four, four and a half as part of a $10 million Series A, we often lead. We have led about two thirds of the deals that we have done at entry. we first institutional capital in just under 80% of the investments we make. We're also very happy to follow. So it sounds like I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth, but the reality is, is that climate is a collective action problem. We need a really healthy ecosystem to support us. Or we love it when there are other high quality leads that come into this space. We we measure a kind of a loose metric we call capital catalyzed. The theory of operation here is how much capital have we been partially responsible for bringing in either alongside us or behind us? When we invest in a company and we lead a seed round and then a very high quality firm comes in right after, we count that as catalyzed capital. It likely wouldn't have happened without our presence being there. We started as two of us. We were two of us for a couple of years. Then there were three of us. (laughs) We're now up to 10. So we've accelerated that. I'll show you pretty pictures of our faces shortly. But we are about five and a half years old. Paul, you mentioned this, 48 companies. We have 42 active companies, a number of exits. We also track a a number of diversity metrics. We're pretty proud that we are one quarter of our companies are women-led. It is a lot Worse than 50%, but it's a lot better than the industry average of 2%. So we're both winning and losing there. We do pay a lot of attention to it. We also are delighted with a small team to see over 2,000 employees across our portfolio. So it's amazing as people are looking to, for things to do that are more impactful in their life, that they're finding their ways into our growing set of companies. Paul also uh, mentioned this, but we do cover anything that has a positive climate impact scale is fair game for us. That means we'll do hardware software services it doesn't matter as long as it has a positive impact if the company scales we don't underwrite to a specific impact number we care a lot that's our stage gate and we will invest if if at scale it makes an impact across four areas the mobility and urbanization is is one energy transition broadly defined Everything from fossils, renewables, centralized, decentralized, a very broad category. There's obviously some some overlap there between urbanization and energy transition related to electrification of transportation. You can throw many of our companies in either bucket there. Another category that is a little bit disparate from those, food and agriculture. That's everything from upstream agriculture to downstream new food products. We've got represent companies in all of those, and a, and a fourth bucket that we call sustainable production and consumption, which is a total grab bag. It's everything about how we manufacture, how we transport, how we deliver, and how we consume goods and services. Obviously, that is how the economy runs. It's not realistic, in our opinion, to believe that people are going to stop consuming. So how do you make that more sustainable? Picture of us, We we've endeavored quite directly to make it look not just like the two co-founders, you can see Josh and, and me there in front of the Bay Bridge here near our office in San Francisco. We've expanded the team pretty dramatically here over the last two years, and we're swinging away, making about eight to 10 new investments per year. I mentioned this earlier, but just as a refresh, we're talking about rebooting the climate capital stack. So if you look at this, you can think about non dilutive capital, R&D, there's some government grants. You've got pre-seed, oftentimes angels, sometimes institutional. We play here. We play heavily in seed. That's kind of the bolus of our normal curve. And we will invest in series A as well. Um, we will also selectively invest in a subset of our companies at the growth stage, which is a longer story here. As we think through this, and I'm going to come back to this later in the presentation, Pre-seed is actually getting a fair bit of love over the last couple of years. Seed is also getting a bit of love. Series A right now, there aren't that many dedicated funds that are focused on kind of series A to B. There is a tremendous amount of capital that is dedicated towards climate that has been formed in the last couple of years at the Growth Equity. And so what we're seeing today is good interest, good capital formation, Pretty quick deals moving at the pre-seed and seed in climate. Series A is a bit of a softer spot right now, which we can pick up on later. This is some data that we put together, now a little bit dated, so you won't see any 2022 data. This is a scrub from Pitch Deck, excuse me, PitchBook. And it was effectively the announcements by AUM of funds going all the way back to 2005, and dedicated to climate. Now, this is a little bit unfair because it doesn't include the generalist venture funds and generalist other funds that are investing as a strategy. And so it's largely understated. These are dedicated climate funds. But what you can see here is in 2005, not so much, massive run up in 2007, reset in 2008, some overhang in 2009, and then death and destruction from 2010 really through 2017. Our first fund was in 2017. This is, there's, there's many reasons why this, that you can think through this. We actually have a whole mini presentation that I'm not going to run through here on what's different this time and why there are very likely to be different outcomes this time versus last time. But in the old Gardner height cycle, you can always, you can always put some labels on there. So trigger event you could throw in there is the inconvenient truth. This is actually a little earlier takes a little while to build momentum. We hit our peak of inflated expectations in that 2008, 2009 period. Everybody was sad for quite a while. And now, of course, we are onto the slope of enlightenment. So we're we're quite actually bullish on on capital formation across the sector, despite what has happened. This is another reason we think to be both optimistic and a little bit despondent on, on how much capital is actually being devoted towards climate. Whereas this is the fund formation that is a different story than what actual deals are getting done. This is the deals. Also a scrub from PitchBook through last year where you can see all venture here. You can see the massive inflationary run up in 2020 and in particular 2021 where there was just kind of an ongoing party. I haven't actually scrubbed the same data set in 2022. My understanding is it is down quite significantly particularly in the later stage rounds. I have some data that I haven't made pretty here. Um, but we have pulled out the clean tech and climate tech scrub on early stage deals. So this is through series A on PitchBook. And what you can see here, that's a little blue. What you can see here specifically is the percentage of of all venture that was devoted towards clean tech and climate tech. And you can see in 2005, 2006, six, two thousand eight it ended up peaking over 14% of all venture dollars were going into clean tech which is quite remarkable and through 2021 you can see it's actually part of this is the denominator here right but you can see that only about 4 or 5% of all venture is going into into climate which we think there is a significant amount of headroom in. And Paul, you're welcome to interrupt at any point.
0: No, I Abe, was, I was going to say I was actually looking at these exact same numbers last the weekend before last. So Series A, Series A, and before, and before. is down around twenty, is down twenty eight percent again, according to the pitch book, down twenty eight percent on a year-on-year basis in Q3. And just to put that into context: private equity, which obviously is not what we're talking about here, is down north of fifty.
1: We have it. That's, so sorry, sound, that's, but, sorry,
0: that's and that's total, that's total, total, total venture.
1: That's total venture, not for climate not, and clean tech. Not yeah. just
0: climate, not just climate. That's in total.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I'm actually I'm surprised it's not down more in venture. Early early's been the, the most protected area. Yeah, that sounds exactly right. This is this is kind of something that we were showing a, a set of LPs at one point. It's like, yes. There's a lot going on here. Yes, there's a lot of buzz around it, but no, there's actually a tremendous amount of headroom in here to deploy new dollars and capital formation. And so there is a broader question, which I wouldn't say is a large debate, but does venture apply to, to climate broadly? We obviously think so. But if you looked at the historical returns in clean tech venture over the last 15 years prior to now, you would say that that's actually challenged, is that it's quite easy to lose money investing in these sometimes very capital-intensive businesses. This is a question that we have asked, which is how how much of the entire ecosystem is going to be solved by innovation and how much is going to be solved by deployment. We think, of course, it is both. It's going to take all hands. But this is a fun chart that Our World and Data and others actually publish about the actual GHGs based on both activity as well as industry. And we have a long, long way to go. Venture is a necessary but entirely insufficient tool set and can only be used in a subset of our climate challenges. We've obviously dedicated our lives and careers to doing so, but it's going to take a lot of collective action to get us out of jail here. And of course, this is not our work. This is IPCC's. This is their Mm -hmm. April update. But this is always one that I enjoyed staring at. If you can see this on the right, we can get there. This is the cost per ton of CO2 abated. This is our baseline emissions. And if you look at this, you can see the zero line. There's some low-hanging fruit here, right? This all should be falling out of bed easy if the economic system were a perfect beast, which it is not. And all of these actually cost a lot of money. You can get a lot, a lot of the way there, but you can't get all the way there unless you're paying an egregious amount per ton. This has a, not arbitrary, but $250 a ton here to get us completely out of jail over some long time period. So that's always a nice visual. You can see exactly the implications here to get us into the negative territory, as we know, you've got to have some direct air capture, which in today's tech stack is largely out of the money. And this is the same story, which is, it's not going to be cheap. So both by the time we kind of run through this, you can see this as the annual evolution of the top five, the, the capital cost of weather and climate disasters over time. I believe this is a 30-year average that Axios had put together doesn't have 2022 data yet, but you can see the inevitable turn up, not the best. Interestingly, there has been a another note that that renewables are forever going to get cheaper. That is a generally correct statement, but as you actually get into the details, especially with the supply chain shocks over the last year, you can see that that has in fact not been the case. So this is a slight increase. Some people believe this is actually appropriate. These are still very cheap, by the way. You're talking about 34 bucks a megawatt hour. It's it's still virtually free by historical. That's right,
0: that's, sorry, that's full full embedded capex cost.
1: These are yes. So these are these are the PPA responses in North America. So this is hey, some utility or some some corporate is saying I'm looking for a PPA for solar, and this is the cost, the clearing cost of all those transactions. This is from a brokerage, a tech-enabled brokerage called Level 10 Energy that has a PPA brokerage business. So you can see this has been climbing as developers realize that they actually have to have some margin. It was a race to the bottom for quite a while. This is missing the earlier, I don't know if you can see my mouse, but this went down precipitously over the, the 10 years prior. So this is actually a very good curve. It's just lopping off the last couple of years, which has been a little bit of reversal in the direction of these costs. And this is much more recent. I showed the the, the longitudinal slides earlier from two thousand five through twenty twenty one. This is twenty one to twenty twenty two. Our friends over at at Climate Tech VC did a really nice scrub on the year to date fund announcements. Again, this is kind of the AUM. This data doesn't match PitchBook precisely, but it is relatively close. And they 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 broke it out in sizes of funds. So smaller, these are kind of pre-seed funds. This is a seed to small Series A. This is kind of traditional venture fund area. And this is private equity and infrastructure. So if you were to just ignore these $500 million funds and focus on this, the left side of this, it's up, but it's not up tremendously. If you look at the whole stack, there is a tremendous amount of capital that is forming around infrastructure and private equity, which gets back to that climate capital stack, it is great, but there aren't that many early stage deals that have gotten to the point that they can actually deploy or they can absorb that, that kind of capital. Um, those dollars are mostly going into other kinds of assets, whether it's charging, solar, wind, things of that nature. And just some kind of, this, this is a boring slide, only words, so I won't spend much time on it. But we get asked a lot what what are we actually seeing on the ground in the business and we are a sub-asset class of venture so we do we're not directly correlated but we're closely correlated venture was stabilizing in kind of the q3 time period after the first half of the year which was a mess it's it's now a mess they're the the next year performance everybody is expecting a significant recession. Um, inflation gone wild, capital drawing up. and there's a it's really a if you talk to a bunch of venture firms, it's a pretty negative view. Climate has been one of the few relative bright spots in the sector. We were speaking to an LP a couple of weeks ago and they've got something like 50 different funds in their portfolio across mostly tech and some climate. And they were mentioning that their book in tech is down like 70%. Their climate book, as in the value, is not down at all. So that's a relative strong spot. Our explanation isn't just that climate is outperforming. The real explanation in my mind is that the climate capital stack, the ecosystem is so young, we never had the run-up. With a couple exceptions, we didn't have these $3 billion valuations. And so in the correction, they haven't come back down to earth because they never made it into orbit in the first place. So while that is a very good thing because it is quite destructive to have values right up and then down for a variety of reasons, the reason it didn't ride down is because it never wrote all the way up in, in our general opinion. There are some exceptions to that. Mm-hmm. The Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. is a really big deal. I've got one last visual on that, so I'm going to come back to that. And that has catalyzed some more interest just broadly in the sector. We are still seeing valuations remain relatively rational despite this outperformance. I would say that if the if the economy and the venture industry were still humming, I'm not sure that would be the case. But from our perspective, valuations remain rational. There are always some differences to the positive or to the negative. Uh, and it is not a fun environment to raise capital. But it all seems to be functioning still. This is something I anonymized a, a, a slide that we put together for our LPs. This is a bit of a strange one, but what we measured across a series of our portfolio companies was the level of impact from the Inflation Reduction Act and the current fair market value. This is the, our book value of companies. I obviously deleted names. What you'll see here is a couple companies that are doing quite well. You can see the large bubbles that aren't really affected by the Inflation Reduction Act, but you can see a ton of companies. A lot of these doesn't mean necessarily mean these are bad. It just means they're held at cost, these smaller bubbles. That means that we've recently invested. We have a huge number of companies that are going to see a huge tailwind from the Inflation Reduction Act. When we invest, we never expect or expected to see any true additional subsidies of any way or in any structure come into the market. We invest expecting that unit economics will be standalone on existing policies. And so this is all just gravy. There's going to be in our opinion, a massive explosion of company performance, not for another 12 to 18 months, but if you actually kind of follow the bouncing ball on the Inflation Reduction Act, there are incentives that really start kicking in that you can actually use 18 to 24 months post-passage. This is between IRS guidance on on the way tax equity is structured. It's on supply chain, domestic content. It's on labor labor law and the additional incentives you get through adhering labor. So there's a lot in here that's really going to show up over time. So even without the Inflation Reduction Act, we were quite bullish. and The markets were acting quite rationally. With it, we're really delighted to see actually the tailwinds. We still have not seen massive exits to recycle, cap- recycle capital back to LPs, to get them excited to come back into the sector to make us feel like the flywheel is truly spinning, it's likely another couple of years before we see that happen. And I've got some backup slides if we need them, but that's the summary.
0: Perfect, Dave. Thank you so much. But where do we start? Okay, so I want to sort of talk a little bit about where I think there's there be natural pushback to one of, one of your statements about the rationality of valuation, the the fact that, that climate has held up so well in the face of, I hate the expression "nuclear winter" for tech VC, but let's face it. If you, well, I'll just before full disclosure, we have seven fa- seven families who we work with, and every one of them has money with Tiger Global. Mm-hmm. Right. So enough. Yeah, that's we know the problems. We know the problems there. But man, let's. I want to talk. Let's talk. Talk about this sort of frame this in terms of, of a macro framework, right? So if I look at the outlook for climate VC in twenty twenty three and beyond, right. Well, particularly for 2023, I see two competing and very and very strong, strongly competing head and tailwinds. One, the tailwinds you just mentioned it. It's 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 IRA. It's 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 the under and it's the 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 growth rates that we're seeing. Where I think we're current. What you said, six percent of six percent of equity, six percent of equity is going into climate tech at the moment, or six percent of VC going into climate tech, something like that. The bull story we know. Right, that's that's straightforward. But at the end of the day, whether you've invested in public market public market equivalents, it's been very hard for climate climate tech public private venture, right, to decouple from the Armageddon that's been growth that's been growth equity and and, and generic venture, right. Throw through the we if we were having this conversation three weeks ago, it would have been bad throw in FTX and the the slew of crypto bankruptcies you've got right now. And it's even, it's multiples worse, right? Talk a bit about those competing headwinds and how you're thinking about deploying capital. And more importantly, how on the back foot are you going into 2023 of letting valuation come to you?
1: Yeah, it is interesting. Each one of these, so uh, I'm going to keep refreshing this kind of capital stack discussion. When I started in venture, there wasn't as much specialization. There wasn't a seed stage. There wasn't an A stage. There was was kind of early stage and maybe like growth stage, maybe growth. But mostly people did venture. Over the last particularly five, but really 10 years, each stage of capital has specialized. The funds have specialized, not always, but often they will have a kind of a specific entry point. And those entry points, they change a lot. Kind of the, the ebbs and flows change a lot depending on the time scales that you can expect an exit. When there's a lot of momentum in the late stage or in the in the in the public markets, for example, there's a window that a lot of growth investors can just shove capital into and hit momentum. I'm a I'm a terrible momentum investor, to be honest. I, I recognize that a long time ago, is I'm I'm too fundamental to space focused. And that's people can make great returns for their LPs in those strategies, but you need the right window and you need a relatively short time constant to actually get in and get out. And nobody knows when the when the, the party stops and so on on late stage investing. When you think about that strategy and then you think about some of those groups having committed capital, but that strategy is completely shut for the foreseeable future, you cannot find liquidity in the near term. Every firm and fund manager will start thinking about, okay, well, I have this committed capital. I still need to be in business. Where can I go? And, and frankly, it's a smaller check to write for an earlier stage company and for equivalent ownership, right? And so what has happened in my opinion is that the capital from a lot of these later stage groups, whether they were doing B, that's all shifted a bit earlier. So what's happening is, is that it's a lot of the capital is getting shoved into kind of that seed to series A and like small series A, uh, whereas before those groups might've been doing like a series B and series C. So that's one aspect It has kept kind of the early stage where we always hit the entry button. Like our entry point is always early. It's kept that area relatively healthy. If capital formation at the fund level really stops or slows significantly, it's not gonna stop. It really slows significantly over the next 12 to 18 months. That's gonna slow as well. The way that our funds, any fund is structured is there's typically a three to five year investment period. It's oftentimes the greater of time or when you're through your investment reserves. And so if you slow down investing, you can live out a longer time frame on your fund cycle, which is likely to happen, I think, writ large over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. Everybody was expecting it to happen 12 months ago. It hasn't. The fund formation has been coming. So that's kind of the broad story. There is a separate story, which is fund formation specifically in climate, which is what I pulled up earlier. That has been, it's such a small porf, portion of asset allocators' worlds. We're in the middle of a lot of these conversations. We have some some of the largest institutions in the world, actually. I think we we have something like $2 trillion worth of assets across our LPs, obviously not to us, but that's their their AUM broadly.
0: Oh, which, right, that's a, sorry, that's across all strategies.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Right, Across right, all right. strategies. Right. So some very large LPs that have that have come in. And it, it's been quite fascinating because they they're all trying to figure out climate. They have very little capital exposed to climate, and they're all trying to figure out rational ways to get exposure. It's usually not the venture asset allocators, it is the broad asset allocators. They are thinking about, I have a climate's going to be a thing for 20, 30 years. There are going to be returns. How do I? Seek Alpha. How do I actually get positive exposure to climate? And a lot of them have ended up circling venture. Many have also started circling kind of that infrastructure raised by large name brand firms.
0: Yeah, and I think, and I think, and I think the infrastructure side of things—that's that's the low hanging fruit, right? Because if you combine, if you combine an interest, an interest rate environment where where yield is as attractive as it's been in twenty years. Because suddenly we've gone from the previous decade where you had this what I call a flat risk curve where sovereign bonds yielded you X, but mezzanine finance yielded you a little bit more than X, right? And yeah. now what you have is you have this really steep curve where you get paid to take risk, right? So whether it's, whether it's infrastructure project, re, renewable infrastructure projects, pipelines, this sort of stuff, the yields on this stuff are really, really attractive. And you can deploy, as your chart showed before, Five hundred million dollars, a billion dollars worth of capital. I think it was so. I think that was Sophie's Sophie's chart that That's right. um, we showed. Yeah. So if CCP wants to see, CCP wants to deploy capital. If PIF wants to deploy capital, Temasek wants to deploy capital. They can go off and give and write a check to TPG or Macquarie or any That's of right. these guys and do put a billion dollars to work with really good yields in really short order. What you guys do, it's it takes longer it's 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 probably it's certainly more I'd argue it's certainly more intensive in terms of the the diligence process and the like because if you're giving if you're partnering with BP shell and Siemens right you've, you've got you could deploy capital quickly And again, again and I think you're getting this point there are there are this this notion that there is this this free-for-all of money that's going into the climate space it's just rubbish it's just not it's just not accurate right? Gets to a point where you talked about this my, again. My words, not yours. This sort of liquidity vacuum in Series B, Series C that currently exists. I see that as a real problem. I see a problem. I'd love your thoughts on that and and sort of the vacuum in sort of mid, sort of small scale project finance as well, which I think is a is so, a, another area of problem.
1: Yes. Yeah, so we spend a lot of time thinking about that. The latter question around small scale project finance, which we can come to. The liquidity vacuum—I wouldn't call it quite a vacuum. The the challenge of kind of investing and operating in a sector that was really in an aggregate vacuum for from 2008 through through 2000 really 17, 18, is that I'm 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 just full of scar tissue. It's like that's the norm, and so the 2008 through 2021 period, we're like, what is going on here? Why, why are people throwing all this money in here? It's great, but it's like, it was very confusing in a, in, in quite a positive way. So there's still a lot more capital today than there was five years ago, like by probably literally an order of magnitude actually, because the charts I showed, as I said before, does not include a lot of the mainstream funds that are coming in. And I've been having a lot of conversations with mainstream venture funds, post IRA, thinking about climate. There's been some blog posts recently as some of those groups, for the first time since 2008, when GPs were getting fired for investing in clean tech. Nobody says it that bluntly, but that's what happened over a couple of years to today, where we now have kind of GP level folks coming back in and saying, I want to do climate. We think there's real opportunity here. And so there is some formation there. I will say that at that kind of A to B level in particular, the investment community seems to be focused on things that are somewhat familiar. And by that, I mean, if you're a software and a SaaS investor, you want to do climate in software and SaaS, right? If you're a marketplace investor, you want to do climate in marketplace. There aren't that many hardware and deep tech investors. And that's, you know, half our portfolio is hardware and deep tech, broadly read, right? And so there is a big hole. In that capital stack, when you start thinking about the dollars it takes to pull through these companies that are a bit heavier on the asset side, until you can actually access some of that project finance or some of the infrastructure or private equity capital, private equity and venture don't always mix well, but you can you can structure things from an infrastructure standpoint to make it work with the venture at the appropriate time in the company's maturity. But until that gap is filled, there is a bit of a weak spot still in pulling some of these companies through. Right now, it's being filled by non-traditional investors still. Obviously, the Tigers have pulled back a bit, but we are seeing a whole host of kind of direct investment from those that might more traditionally be LPs, for example. Now, you mentioned Masek, not one of our LPs, but they're making active investments in direct companies, things like that.
0: So, but I think it's it's interesting. I think about it this way, that if you want to make one of something, right, plenty of money to build a prototype. That's- See the seed, pre-seed, brown. If you want to make a million of something, HSBC, standard Chartered, JP Morgan, we give you your cash. If you want to make 50 of something, if you want to build that your first 20, a 25 million dollar plant, right? And we interview yeah. amazing companies. Like every week we find a company that has a brilliant business model that obviously they're still in the they're still in the lab. It works on paper but their ability to get that 25 million dollar investment to build a biochar plant or an offshore wind or an offshore floating offshore wind as someone we did last week the is yep. just not there at the moment and that's 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 i think that's incredibly frustrating
1: it's not there at the moment it's never been there and what's fascinating is watching the same conversation occur particularly in this kind of public private side of things i've been talking to various members of the rotating cast and crew at the department of energy for now really since 2007, about the exact same thing. And everybody's got a different pretty picture and chart around it, but it's literally the exact same thing, first-of-a-kind of project finance. The reason why it's such a, a, such a logjam is because it doesn't make sense from a financial perspective. Early-stage equity venture, what we do, a typical portfolio have 30 companies. You expect five to 10 companies to really move the needle. Every, a lot of the others are not. That's okay. That is literally built into our portfolio model. It's very different than saying, working with these entrepreneurs, as many don't succeed. That's a lot of our day job, honestly. If you think about the next stage of capital, um, the loss ratio has to be lower. When you get into project finance, in the success case, meaning the thing works, you don't get upside. You don't get get upside. 30%
0: IRRs tops.
1: Oh, tops. I mean, infrastructure is, is like... People would be delighted previous, before before the Fed changed the window, people were jumping over hoops for 15%. Obviously, the risk-free rates changed pretty dramatically here, so it's probably more like 20%, but that's actually speaking to a reason why some of this might dry up a little bit more. The hurdle rate's gotten higher. The one other thing that we don't talk about broadly, which is unfortunate, but effectively, the interest rate environment over the last 15 years prior to the last year has been an amazing tailwind for renewables broadly and a lot of this infrastructure because capital has been free um relatively speaking it is now no longer free so when you when you think through that you cannot create a return seeking project fund that does first of a time projects if your hit rate is basically not perfect you cannot have five or ten projects where you lose 100 on any one of those and so the capital isn't there because there's no aggregate returns to be had now there are groups that have effectively managed to take some equity upside either through equity or through warrants for doing first-of-a-kind projects that can work you have to be very good like way better than the average project investor and then the question is is transactional costs structuring a 25 million million dollar fund or investment is literally the same transactional brain damage or more than a 250. Um, and so the transactional friction combined with returns basically means that you can't find capital. So there's two real solutions to that in our minds. One is what has actually happened, and this is not a free lunch, but what has actually happened with the loan guarantee program. I'm sure you've talked about that before, at least in the US. We're very US focused, by the way. We're North American firms. So apologies for those who are dialing in from elsewhere. But there was thirty-eight billion dollars authorized for the loan guarantee program writ large, with a whole bunch of sub-asset allocations in that. That is actually a—it's a lie because that those dollars are ten-to-one leverage. So it's really somewhere about three hundred and fifty to three hundred eighty billion dollars authorized for Jigger's organization, um, which is amazing. It is not easy to get. It takes a year to two. There's a ton of prep work. There's a lot of transactional brain damage. But at least there is some capital for first-of-a-kind projects. If you want to go through that brain damage and you have the frankly the capital to be able to do so so that's one path the second path which is what we have historically done is having haven't come up for with a title for this but if the quantum of capital to actually put the first one to two projects in the ground to de-risk the technology and the operations is not so ridiculous that you can fund it off the equity capital off of equity balance sheet then you do the first couple projects on the balance sheet. What that effectively deletes is these massive projects, 100, 200, and $300 million projects. What it really focuses on are these kind of 10 to $30 million projects. If the IRRs are there, if it, it's north of our general rule of thumb is actually, if the IRRs are north of 30% on a standalone, unlevered basis of kind of a tech enabled project, you can usually, finance the first couple of those on equity and make the numbers work um,
0: Fund the hardware on equity, which
1: well, the whole project. So what you're really talking about is like, for most of these things, we've got an, a huge number of examples across the portfolio, but Fervo energy is uh, an easy one in ours, which is a next generation geothermal. I'm not our lead on that, but you're effectively using unconventional gas techniques to actually rework underground resources for geothermal applications. So what that actually means is you will selectively frack so you're increasing the surface area and then you will plug holes so you don't lose water underground and the geothermal as a total aside is uh has suffers from brutal decline curves because of these issues is you lose the thermal the thermal resource and you lose water and so this effectively increases surface area and decreases the water loss those are projects there there are tens of millions of dollars to put in the ground in that case they recently raised what was it? 100. I'm going to get the numbers wrong. 130 million dollars in equity capital that it, that will fund the first couple of projects, and then over time, as those are successful, you can back leverage them. You can sell up, sell them off into SPVs. There are many ways that that are pretty linear once you've got these things up and running with a stable cash flow. They've signed I don't know what the public number is a lot of PPAs, so they've got stable, high quality credit off takers. They just have to build the project once they do so they can find some much cheaper capital in the form of infrastructure capital or project capital but the first couple of projects are all equity
0: interesting but so, go, so go, going back to your, your question about interest rates right because it's, the excel spreadsheets are a wonderful thing right so if you've got a, if you've got a zero interest rate then the for, the the value of your forward cash flow is effectively infinite right hence hence fr- hence, frothy, hence frothy valuations right yep. historically again very broad sweeping statement here. The death knell of companies. Well, the initial death knell was a down round, right? Talk about, talk about, look, this, it, it is, it is undeniable that 2023 in in venture in the aggregate is going to be littered with down rounds. Now, whether they become systemic for companies, that will be on an idiosyncratic basis. But talk a little bit about the prospect of down rounds in particular sectors. I think one one sector you, you mentioned SAS before carbon accounting carbon accounting software is a little bit of a fall letter word at the moment so there's a pros there's potential there but if you talk a little bit about a sectors that could be susceptible to down rounds and b what gets you interested in a down round going forward
1: oh down rounds. Oh, well, structurally, we should unpack a little bit of the down round discussion and why they're so toxic, which is if you're in venture becomes more obvious. If you're outside of venture, it's really esoteric. So the way that standard, even company friendly set of preferred investment docs, so the actual security that any venture firm purchases, there are always provisions in there called anti-dilution provisions. There's a couple different flavors of those. Those provisions are triggered anytime a new security, so a share price, is issued at a lower price than what you as a preferred investor pay for it. The net effect of that is it doesn't keep the investors whole, but it does give the investors a bit of extra love when the down round is suffered at the expense of the common shareholders. And so just to put that uh, fine point on it, a, you know, founding CEO at the Series C might have, 15, 20% of a company on the cap table, if they then go for a series C1 or something like that, and it's a down round, well, they may go from 15 to like 3%, depending on how much capital is raised to the pre-money valuation. It's different in every case. And so what you end up with is an out of the money set of shares with a lot less ownership. And the stock advice that we give is you gotta take your lumps, right? If you've got to capitalize your company, cash is king, you got to, you do what you need to do. If you have a, a friendly set of investors and there is some value, they will oftentimes waive those anti-dilution rights. It's still quite dilutive. but you can waive them. You need usually the majority of all the preferred to do so. It's different in every company. But the net effect is just incredibly demotivating. So that's actually the problem. When we invest in these early stage companies, what we are doing is literally sometimes just giving two people in a room with a dog. Money, and that's it. If that team is demotivated, and the kind of the the emotional contract is broken, that there's going to be increasing value for what they're doing, then many people will continue in a, especially in a downturn, will continue to take the paycheck. They're done. The company's done. It's not always the case, and you can structure around it. You can reincentivize the the employees, but it is quite hard. And so that is something that we pay a lot of attention to. There are very few areas that we will do a down round and invest into at the earliest stage. It is different when you get critical mass. So if you're if you've if you've raised fifty million dollars at a billion valuation and you have to reset to raise a hundred at five hundred, you're going to be fine. If the company's got critical mass, if it's shipping product. If it's got a larger, stable team that's more institutional versus just backing some founders at the earliest stage, that can work. But that's not our strategy. So there are groups that are growth investors that are quite good at that. And there is value there. It's not what we do. Got it.
0: Got it. Got it. Got it. But again, the issue, though, is, and again, so what? that's obviously you participating in companies that you hadn't invested in before, That's right. It but clearly you've got 42 companies with skin in the game. And let's yep. hope that none of them have to go through this, but let's assume in 2023, one or two have to, right? Is it idiosyncratic about how you handle the deal or are you going to be there because you are supporting of them? How does it differ if they're already portfolio
1: companies? Yeah, it is It is idiosyncratic. We we really endeavour to support our companies. Our our resources to invest in those companies in those scenarios are not like a late stage fund. And so we do our best to try to support those companies, but oftentimes we don't have enough capital in our in our fund strategy to actually support them if they're burning a lot of money. If it's an earlier stage company that is just needs to buy some more time, that's a different story. Th- those are easier to support. Um,
0: Right, and this pivot opportunity, obviously, if there's a pivot opportunity in that as well, these are all things that come into, come into. Yeah,
1: Yeah, we are, I mean, there is a kind of advice going around, which is applied differently to different companies on, make sure that you are being responsible with the capital that you are spending. Sometimes for even a healthy company, that means that you need to pare down headcount by 15, 20%. And that's brutal. And those are people, those are employees. But the perspective there is if you don't do that, then everybody might disappear. And so that is both stock advice, but it is also being applied more specifically. And that is going around.
0: Got it. Let's elevate the conversation a little bit into sort of more interesting, more happier things. Of your four major sectors, of opportun- opportunity sets in mobility and urbanization, what's, what's something that's sort of super exciting for you?
1: there's been this is this is boring because it's so obvious but the broad sector around electrification of transportation people have been talking about this forever it is happening it is here and it is growing and in particular fleet electrification we think is just going to be on a ridiculous tear over the course of the next three to four years and we're at the very very early innings of that so we we had made an investment in the formation around in a company called ampli power Um, that was effectively software-enabled charging management. So they would actually come in and deliver the charging infrastructure and manage it to make sure that the fuel savings effectively, the electron savings existed when you dealt with demand meters. Back to a really strong entrepreneur who had actually been doing that for behind-the-meter energy storage. And that ended up getting sold off last year in a quite successful exit, actually. It It was a very happy return. And The company's having a lot of fun, actually, with with a deeper balance sheet behind them. After that, we realized that we had very little kind of surface area exposed to that trend. And so we've been actively pursuing companies that that have exposure to those trends. We're not alone in that. So it's an area that's been getting quite a bit of interest for obvious reasons. But we have made two investments, and we're chasing a third right there, right now, in the last 12 months in that area. So my
0: food food nag. I, when I have conversations with with the VCs that we speak to about food and ag, every everybody's excited, but everyone pokes holes in the particular models of, it, of where they're excited. If no, you know, it's like like plant based protein. There's no, it's never been. It's a commoditized business traditionally. Trying to brand that now is problematic. Is is vertical farming the be all and end all? What's something within the ag space that you are super excited about that we that we that maybe people are poking holes in that they shouldn't be.
1: Yeah. This is where we get to talk around bulk a little bit, right? So there's, I'll give you, I'll give you three, three quick ones in various parts of this. So one of our larger, more quickly scaling companies is a company called Meaty. Meaty is a, is a company that's doing whole muscle cuts effectively. So this is like a chicken breast replacement. It's a steak replacement. It's not a ground meat replacement. And they're using mycelium so mushroom roots effectively being grown in a relatively standard fermentation process the challenge with the alternative protein world in our opinion is there is some consumer acceptance to it the food is good it's not great it's good if you like those kinds of things it's good and it's not healthy and it's,
0: the,
1: <laughs> it's not a healthy don't, don't don't
0: read the labels don't 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 read don't, the labels
1: don't do don't do that and so If you can wave a magic wand and have a relatively clean label, right? So few ingredients without a lot of stuff in it that nobody actually understands. Taste, texture. That's actually they've done a pretty good job. Not perfect, but a pretty good job on taste and texture, in my opinion, for at least some of them. Healthy, which is related to the first. And most importantly, from the investment community, the cost entitlement has to make sense. So if you actually look at what goes in from a processing, a capex, and an ingredient standpoint, for most of the alternative proteins, it's it doesn't make any sense, you can't compete with meat. And so not only is that not gonna have actually a huge climate impact because you're not gonna be replacing a lot of the kind of the mid to lower income communities spend on it. it, it doesn't make sense unless you can sell a premium product and that's not gonna last forever. So meaty's cost entitlement at scale is amazing. It will get down to cheaper than chicken over time. They've gotta scale appropriately. It's delicious. It's got three ingredients. It's nutritious. The downside is there's probably not enough not enough fat in it. Honestly, it's mostly high quality protein and 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 fiber. Does
0: that affect the taste? Is it the fact that there's not enough fat in it? It can. It?
1: And the theory, of course, is that you, then you cook it just like you would chicken. So if you're if you're if you're throwing it in a little olive oil or something, great. It picks it up brilliantly. It's a sponge. And they've got different formulations of that, but that we're very excited about that company And they, recently,
0: and they sorry to interrupt. And they, are they selling? Are they, commo- can you, can you buy commercial products at the moment?
1: They're scaling dramatically. They have a whole host of supply agreements that have been inked, most of which are not public. They are shipping in the Colorado region. So if you go oh. to like Sprouts, that's where they're based. They're based out of Boulder. If you go to Sprouts in that region, you can buy it off the shelves, but they're supply limited. They're sold out for the next year and they're, they're building some very large manufacturing facilities. So that's a fun kind of food. It's a little contrarian because everybody, if you read the press, it's like alternative protein is over. Well, if you actually pull out the financials of those companies, you can understand why the financial press is saying that. It doesn't make any sense, right? It's not good when you're, when your depreciation ends up being more than your price because of volume issues. So you've got a lot of issues that are kind of building up in that world. We're quite bullish on that actually over time. Another one, indoor ag, fascinating. We have stayed away from containerized fresh produce in that you're effectively switching sunlight for LEDs, even though the automation and kind of the specialization makes a lot of sense. We have made an investment in in a company called Hippo Harvest, which is using next generation kind of ML and robotics, using off the shelf robots actually to do greenhouse growth. And we're really excited about that. They've taken a very practical approach to just focusing on the cost of growth. And we think it's pretty linear for them to get to the cost of field grown leafy greens, non-organic leafy greens using their approach. And that one's quite exciting. They're gonna have some fun announcements in the first half of next year related to all of that as well. So that's using sunlight still and some supplemental LEDs, but this is greenhouse optimization, not as much of a controlled environment. As a as a as a warehouse or a container, but still a lot easier to control than field grown.
0: Got it. Again, I said I wish I had two hours. We are running out of time. Just quickly, in terms of energy, one thing in energy transition and something that is hard in the hard to abate bucket. Right. What are sure. what are things that sort of interesting there for you?
1: Oh man, I'll try to be quick since I think we are running out of time. There's a lot in the energy transition bucket. One of the fun ones is the the thought that we have a company called Leap, which is effectively a a API interconnect level, if you will, for distributed energy resources to play into the wholesale power markets. I don't want to spend too much time on that because it's very esoteric, but there are a bunch of wholesale markets that are economic participants effectively in, in balancing supply and demand in real time. Historically speaking, small assets have not been included in those. And so it's actually quite the kind of bureaucratic and technical and telemetry bridge to take like an EV charger and bring it into that market. And Leap is doing that. Basically
0: turning this into a consumer product. So your your EV charger at home, et cetera.
1: It's actually more folks, they're b to c more so than anything else. So they might ink a deal with Tesla, for example, where Tesla then uses all of its resources and dispatches using their API into the wholesale energy market in California, ISO. So they've got all, they've got a whole host of companies that have signed up there which is super fun we were the kind of first seed dollars into that there was another one that you you poked at oh hard to abate oh man I mean we've done there we have a lot in any in any portfolio we will do like five companies that are like double Bank shot hard that we wouldn't do 30 of but we're really excited about We've stayed away from kind of the traditional ways to do direct air capture. We have recently made an investment in a company that does ocean capture effectively. That's a company called Eb Carbon. We have an investment in a uh, micro fusion company called Avalanche Energy. That's quite fascinating as well. We've looked at a lot of steel. We haven't made any investments in kind of green steel. Would love to actually do something there. Same for cement and concrete. We've looked at a whole host and have not been able to pull the trigger. So, those those go into that story that I mentioned before, which is venture is a necessary but not sufficient tool. There are only a few of those companies in those hard to abate sectors that actually make sense for venture, in our opinion.
0: Yeah, no, I hear you. Mate. And it's companies like obviously Brimstone. We're we're trying to we try to do an interview with Brimstone on the next next month. To interview them as well let's do this again I think we left a lot on the table so let's get you back in the new year and for an update but everyone this will be up on climatetransform.com by probably by Thursday Abe uh, thank you so much this is this is an awesome conversation
1: thank you appreciate being on.